0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kane, Kinway, Zuman, Hefei, Jennings, Antonio, Drunken Dak, Two-Gun Tony, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey and of course our quartermasters Samuel and Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When people talk about pirates, they're usually talking about pirates from what's called the Golden Age of Piracy. That term, the Golden Age of Piracy, was a term coined in the book A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates. It was assumed for many years that the author of that work, Captain Charles Johnson, was a pen name for Daniel Defoe. However, that's been challenged in recent years, and it's generally accepted that it wasn't Defoe now. But whoever it was, the author used the term Golden Age of Piracy to describe the Caribbean pirates that were active from about 1710 to 1720, roughly speaking. Pirate historians have adopted the term in a broader sense, though. Pirates of all the world, not just the West Indies, from the late 17th and early 18th centuries. You can break that definition into three subcategories, or at least I usually do. The last of these categories was the last great era of the pirates, the golden age according to Captain Johnson, the pirates operating out of the Republic of Pirates at Nassau, Blackbeard, Black Bart Roberts, Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, Calico Jack, Charles Vane, that whole lot. Before that era come the Pirates of the Round, or what were called the Red Sea Men. Those are the Pirates of Madagascar and the mythological settlement of Libertalia, the Pirates who operated in the Indian Ocean. We're talking about William Kidd, Thomas II, and Henry Avery. And we're about to move on to those Pirates, and I'm very, very excited about that. And before that, we have the Buccaneers, Now, the Buccaneers lasted the longest of any of these eras of piracy, almost 50 years, and they could even be divided into their own subcategories. There were the very early religious exiles, the Huguenots that settled Tortuga and the pirates like Legrand, and then there were the Brethren of the Coast under Admiral Henry Morgan, and then the third category of the Buccaneers, what concerns us today, were the last of the Buccaneers. These pirates were, in many ways, the most dangerous. At least, they were the most numerous. This final era of the buccaneers was the height of the Brethren of the Coast, and there were far more pirates active in about 1680 than there were operating out of Nassau in 1715. We don't know their names. You know, the culture doesn't know their names. School children don't know the names of these pirates because there wasn't a Captain Charles Johnson to romanticize them. And what made these pirates so dangerous? Well, they were the first to openly embrace that they were pirates. You know, Henry Morgan and Francois Lolonet, they always had a veneer of private hearing. But this lot, they knew they were pirates. And the lawlessness that came with that, and the brutality that might have been a symptom of the outlaw status that they endured, well, that meant that the colonial powers had to do everything in their power to disperse these pirates. However, we're not there quite yet. First, we have to discuss the twilight of the buccaneers. This is episode 108, the story so far, part 9. The decade in question today, The 1680s, well, it rivals the Blackbeardian Golden Age of Captain Johnson, and in a lot of ways it mirrors it. There were so many pirates active, and there were so many voyages happening at the same time, and there were groups of pirates that would split off from their larger fleets all the time, and then those splinter groups would join up with or maybe form another group of pirates. It's a challenging tale to tell in totality. It's challenging. It was challenging to me, even when I had the time to go into great detail. And we don't have that time on this episode. So instead, we need to compress all of those names and those stories down. Do you remember our mantra about Spanish defenses when the privateers attacked? Well, there's a similar sort of shorthand we could use here, only this time for the buccaneers themselves. It might go something like, This pirate came to the West Indies to fight in the Franco-Dutch War, or the Third Anglo-Dutch War. When peace came, they settled on Tortuga and accepted a letter of marque from the French governor there. From their base on Tortuga, this pirate raided Spanish shipping and settlements all around the New World. The cases where we actually know the early life of these pirates in question today... They're few and far between, but that little introduction can pass for almost everyone in this era. There are differences among them, such as where they're from and what side they fought on in the war, and that actually does matter to this story. There were factions within the Brethren of the Coast that could almost be defined along national lines. Remember, these pirates had just concluded a war in which they were fighting each other, it could take time for those enmities to die down. They were all sailing under French commissions, and the French would sail with all of them, and were are often kind of leading the show here, but the Dutch and the English would not often, although not never, but they wouldn't often sail with each other. So we're going to try and tell that story along that distinction. On the one hand, the French and the Dutch, Tortuga and the piracy occurring in the West Indies, but on the other hand, what concerns us today is the English. Now that story starts on Tortuga as well, with that same French governor who was issuing the letters of marque, a governor named Jacques Népevaux. If you recall from last time Bertrand d'Auron, Jacques Népevaux was his nephew. Népevaux was named lieutenant governor under Oran, and he served as acting governor whenever his uncle was away fighting the war. And when the war ended, Nepevu continued his uncle's lenient pro-privateer policies. He even expanded them. His purpose in doing so was to protect Tortuga, to protect Cap Francois and Saint-Domingue from the Spanish. Remember, they shared an island with Spain, and the war was still raging when Nepevu took over the office. Later on, though, his motivations would be less honest. Nepevu would be seen as a patron, of the pirates, and in a very Mario Puzo sense, a godfather to the pirates. That image comes largely from Nipvu's willingness to license the English as privateers. He gladly did so, even after the English were no longer at war. After the Third Anglo-Dutch War ended in 1676, the English privateers were still very much willing to fight in the Franco-Dutch War. They were mercenaries, it was how they made their living, and this governor was willing to allow them to fight. But that reflected poorly on the English as a whole. It was a diplomatically tense situation, so King Charles II and the lords in Whitehall took action. In April 1677, they passed a piracy act. Now, this was, in reality, just an addendum to the 1670 Piracy Act, but the effects were just as large. It closed that loophole of English privateers serving under foreign colors or taking foreign commissions. And that act, the repercussions of that act, are what give us the first flurry of what can be undeniably called high seas piracy in the West Indies. Now, that's a bold statement. There were other acts of piracy, but usually it could at least be argued that it was a privateer action. But these were open pirates. There was a privateer captain who was fighting in the war, an Englishman named James Brown. But he was sailing for the French when he captured a Dutch East India Company vessel in May of 1677. Now, this was only a month, maybe maybe even a little bit less than a month, since Parliament had passed that Piracy Act. I wonder if word had even reached Jamaica. But if it had, had it reached Captain Brown? Probably not. In fact, I would say almost certainly not. But England was in that tenuous diplomatic position. The Anglo-Dutch War was over, and the discussions that were going to lead England into their alliance with the Netherlands had already begun. And remember, this law was still the law. It applied to Captain Brown despite his knowledge or his lack of knowledge of it. Brown, after capturing this Dutch ship, which was a slave vessel, he sold all of the slaves he had captured to planters on Jamaica, and he had made a fair amount of profit. He was enjoying those profits in Port Royal when the authorities, led by Admiral Henry Morgan, came into town to arrest him. The Jamaican governor wrote letters to the governor of Curacao, and the authorities took pains to retrieve all of the slaves that. Captain Brown had sold. Now, Brown's men were captured, but almost immediately pardoned. However, James Brown himself was to be hanged. And this is something of a turning point in, well, in Jamaican politics, as well as in the world of English piracy. Governor Vaughan, who was probably privy to at least the fringes of what was going on between England and the Netherlands, well, he wanted to set an example here but there were two commissioners of the English admiralty in Jamaica, Henry Morgan and a man named Colonel William Beeston, both of whom would go on to serve as governor later on, but those two argued against executing James Brown. Those two might have saved the life of Captain Brown if not for the actions of another captain, a man named Captain John Coxon. While these debates were going on in Port Royal, Coxon, who was an English privateer sailing under French colors, a privateer in violation of the new law which made him a pirate, well, he was spotted off the coast of Jamaica. Now, Coxon was sailing alongside another Englishman, a man named Barnes, and they were both sailing underneath a French captain named Capitaine Lagarde. The governor sent ships out after them, possibly, even probably, commanded by Henry Morgan. Those ships brought word out to Coxon that he would have to come in to Port Royal, and the French would have to leave Jamaican waters. They brought out word that Coxon was in violation of this new law. Now, Coxon wasn't to be under arrest, but they were informed that they could no longer serve as privateers. If they chose to do so, they would be outright pirates. Coxon and Barnes both chose to do so. They slipped away out of Morgan's clutches, and they sailed south, and we're going to follow them south, but before we do, a quick word on Captain James Brown and Henry Morgan. Governor Vaughn was enraged when Coxon sailed away, and I think almost in retaliation for that, he ordered the immediate execution of Captain James Brown. Now, Morgan and Beeston still disagreed with that act, and they secured a stay of execution from the Chief Justice of Jamaica, a man named Long, but it was already too late. By the time they arrived at the docks with the stay of execution, Captain Brown had already been hanged and was dead. Now, this enraged Morgan and Beeston. They didn't want to go around executing privateers. Those two understood that the privateers were still an asset to Port Royal, They could serve as a potential coast guard, and at the very least they were a bunch of trained soldiers who could man the guns should enemies sail in. They were something that Port Royal desperately needed. But now Morgan and Beeston feared, and I think they feared correctly, that the privateers would stay away from Port Royal and in the long run probably turn to piracy. In an effort to rectify the situation, Morgan, Beeston, and Chief Justice Long attempted to take action against Governor Vaughan-legislative action-but Vaughan countered them by dissolving the Jamaica Assembly entirely. Then he went on to arrest Beeston and Long, the Chief Justice, and sent them back to England. This left Morgan alone to stand against Governor Vaughan. Now Morgan still commanded some respect among the buccaneers and the brethren of the coast but he realized that if he surrendered to Vaughn, if he backed down, he would lose that respect. So Morgan rallied any men that he could, and he stood in opposition to Governor Vaughn, potentially in violent opposition. Now, it never came to that, but Morgan did, in essence, take over the island of Jamaica. And that really kind of worked out. He was the lieutenant governor, after all, so this wasn't a coup, exactly. And in the end, King James would side with Long and Beeston and Morgan back in Port Royal. He would remove Governor Vaughan from power and name Morgan as acting governor of Jamaica for several months until the new governor came to take the post. In the end, this would prove to be too little too late. Captain James Brown had been executed and the rest of the privateers would stay away from Port Royal. But before we deal with that, let's follow John Coxon, Captain Barnes, and Capitan Lagarde on their way south. They would arrive at the Spanish Main in mid-June 1677 near the town Santa Marta in modern-day Colombia. Santa Marta was not a large town, and it fell quickly to this band of pirates, but they only had moderate plunder there. Now, this was still a wartime operation led by French privateers, so it wasn't out of the ordinary. However, for the two English privateers, this was open piracy. But the French capitán Lagarde took captives. The most important of those captives were a local friar as well as the governor, and then they captured a priest. Now that priest, well, he was well-dressed for a colonial priest, but none of these pirates knew who they had captured, at least not yet. The captives, and there were a number more than those three, but less well known, but they were all taken aboard Lagarde's flagship when all of a sudden the Arlamada de Barlavento showed up and attempted to capture the pirates. Now this was a little out of the ordinary. The Armada de Barlavento wasn't everywhere all the time, and it's always entirely possible that they would happen upon the pirates and attempt to capture them, but this happened very, very quickly. And they failed to capture the pirates, which they shouldn't have. But perhaps they were unwilling to fire on the pirate ships for reasons that will soon become apparent. However, the pirates got away. But while they were en route, that uh, priest's identity was finally revealed to them. He was, in fact, the Archbishop Lucas Fernandez y Piedrahita, and he was kind of a big deal. Not only was he an archbishop, which they didn't realize when they had captured him, which is a high-ranking role in the church, he was also a nobleman back in Spain and a renowned theologian. For the pirates, this was kind of an oh-no kind of moment. You know, when the bottom drops out and you can feel the pit of dread in your stomach, like... In a heist movie, when a gang of unknown young thugs steals a briefcase, but when they get it back to the hideout and open it up, they realize that the briefcase is full of diamonds that belong to the mob. You know, that might seem like amazing fortune at first. But I wonder, what would you do with a briefcase full of diamonds? You know, do you, no offense, who will buy them? And then, if you had a briefcase full of diamonds that belonged to the mob... Or, if you had a famous, wealthy Archbishop of Holy Mother Church, you had to deal with the very real fact that powerful people with lots of guns are going to want them back. And if, for whatever reason, they fail to get their property or their Archbishop back, they will hunt you down and kill you without mercy and dump your body unceremoniously into the sea— But the one major difference here between the mob and Spain is that the mob cannot literally field armies and go to war. I mean, you know, they can start a mob war, assassinations and car chases and gun fights, but they can't put ships under sail filled with thousands of soldiers that can invade your country. And John Coxon knew that Spain could and would do just that. Now, I doubt he was afraid of that happening, "'but I bet he was afraid of what the English would do to avoid that, "'namely, to hunt him to the ends of the earth "'and put him hanging in a cage "'until his muscles atrophied and the crows ate his eyes. "'And the English absolutely would. "'They could have turned around, "'but that probably would have ended in the deaths of everyone on board "'except for the archbishop and maybe the governor. "'So they sailed for Port Royal immediately.' However, the archbishop and all of his fellow captives were suddenly treated to the best beds on board. They were given full meals with clean water and even glasses of wine. And when they arrived in Port Royal, John Coxon personally escorted the archbishop, and only the archbishop in this case, to meet with the governor in Port Royal. However, when he got back, he found that neither Vaughan nor Henry Morgan sat in the governor's seat. That office now was held by the former, and now once again, Governor Thomas Lynch. This probably seemed like bad news, but Lynch appears to have given Henry Morgan most of the lead in dealing with the privateers here. His plate was fairly full at the moment because dealing with the archbishop was governor business, Archbishop Fernandez received an official apology from Governor Lynch, and he was put up in the governor's own quarters in the governor's mansion, the finest accommodations that Jamaica had to offer. In the meanwhile, Henry Morgan and John Coxon went out to Lagarde's ship in the harbor. They went out there to, quote, procure the liberty of the governor and others, but finding the privateers all drunk, it was impossible to persuade them to do anything by fair means. End quote. That's a polite seventeenth-century way of saying that Lagarde and his men, who were quite drunk, told the English governor exactly what he could do with his request. So Morgan had to send the French away from Port Royal without any of the other captives. They were to sail for Tortuga, or really wherever they wished, as long as it wasn't Jamaican waters. This story does have a happy ending for the other captives. They were dropped off at Santo Domingo on the pirates' way to Tortuga. They decided that it was too diplomatically hot in the end anyway. But Coxon and the other English privateers, they didn't sail with Capitan Lagarde. When the French privateers realized that this would be the case, they protested. But Morgan made it clear that if they didn't leave willingly, they would be chased off with cannon fire or... Conversely, they would be arrested and potentially killed. This entire series of events, everything from Captain Brown and his execution to Captain Coxon and how the French were treated in the formerly friendly Port Royal, well, this series of events made it clear that times had changed for the pirates of the West Indies. As far as the English were concerned, the era of the privateers was over. And they were right. The era of the privateers was over. But what they didn't realize is that that would give birth to the era of piracy. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has given us a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. And everybody who has suggested this show to your friends. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly...